You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing positive impact on their city and the world. We are stepping towards um, a place where people are demanding much more meaning and purpose um, in the work that they undertake. And the sort of working environments and the places from which we can undertake this work. I get excited whenever I think about co-working spaces. The ideas, the innovation, the collaboration, all in one beautiful space. People loving the work they do, who they do it with and where they do it. It is a recipe for goodness. My guest today is Melina Chan, who has been a leader of Melbourne's co-working community since it sprung up in 2009 and whom every time I talk with inspires me with the impact she is having. I'm Adam Murray. And thanks for joining me as I talk with Melina about the subtle disruption of the places where we work. Do you want to actually talk about where we are today? Yeah, sure. So um, at the moment, we're sitting here in the family room of Foundry 9, which is Inspire 9's second co-working space. So the building we sit in is actually the AKM building, which um, is a quite historically famous uh, building. It's the old Australian knitting mills building yeah. um, and it's sort of been preserved really, really beautifully. So it's a gorgeous yeah, it space with the floorboards and um, all those sorts of things. It's a really, really nice space to be in and um, has fantastic views of the, of the city and surrounds as well. And the Richmond Station. Yep, yep, right, right across the road there. Um, so yeah, we're on level three, which is which is the Foundry 9 co-working space. And Foundry 9 is all about um, really providing that community environment for high growth startups. Um, So so startups that have already found their product market fit, they're on the other side of a series A, you know, and they're they're really just um, really focusing and, and knuckling down and going for scale and traction in the market. So we have a mix here of um, international and Aussie startups. Yep. Yeah. Um, so a couple of those are um, Etsy and Eventbrite are two of our international startups that we house here. Yes. Uh, the, the Etsy team that is here is the Asia Pacific head okay. office and the Eventbrite head office is actually in Sid- Sydney, but this is their Melbourne office here. Okay. Um, and then just a bit of a shout out to our fantastic Aussie startups, which are <laughs> residents in the Foundry 9 space. Yeah, um, we've got Tableau, which is doing amazing things for the world of um, amateur publishing and amateur authoring. So they are essentially an app and a site which is like a YouTube for words. They uh, operate in more than 50 countries and publish more than a million words a day. Wow. So that's like really, really uh, inspiring, I think. It is. And encouraging more and more people to write and share. Yeah. Um, and they were part of the Angel Cube 2013 program okay. intake. Um, and we've got CultureAmp, which is one of our long-standing Inspire9 um, children, I suppose. So the co-founders of CultureAmp actually met at Inspire9 about awesome. five years ago yeah. and decided to get together and to try and create something. And um, five years later, or about four years later, they sort of found their sweet spot, went to market, and were able to raise $9 million earlier this year or late last year, and have gone from a team of eight to a team of 50 globally. 
and they're about measuring cultural impact inside organisations. Yeah, that right? and then yeah, that's hopefully right. eliciting positive change. Yeah. Well. yeah, yeah. So they they um, are all about sort of providing data driven tools and empowering like leadership of organisations to create a better place, create a better workplace kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, which is really, really exciting. I guess they're sort of um, providing a solution which, yeah, really puts the power and, and that education and that information in the hands of the leadership itself rather than the leadership sort of engaging an external expert consultant to sort of conduct a big undertaking or a big project yeah. um, around, around organisational culture. And the third one we've got is We Teach Me, which is an educational platform, online educational platform, which facilitates face-to-face peer-to-peer learning. Yes. And they recently have become um, Australia's largest school based on the number wow. of students and courses offered. So oh that's pretty phenomenal too. Like That is incredible. Yeah, definitely. Australia is, um, you know, maybe not seen as one that's at the forefront front or one of the bigger players yeah. um, in the global startup scene or the global change making scene, I guess. Yeah. But I really like to think of Melbourne and a, a lot of these guys as having like a maybe initially small but very significant kind of impact. Yeah, that is great. Yeah. So this is, this is a, as you were saying, the second space that Inspire Nine's put together. Downstairs yeah. was the original space. Yeah. And that's more smaller businesses or solopreneurs or... Yeah, yeah. so essentially um, Inspire9 is sort of our flagship co-working space, I suppose. It, act, it didn't start in this building. It started about a kilometre away on the other side of the train tracks in Cremorne in a very small, um, a small office space in early 2009. And it just sort of grew organically out of a group of people that wanted to work together that found value out of sharing a space and sharing ideas and collaborating on things. Yeah. Um, so Inspire9 is really all about sort of creatives, freelancers, startups, small businesses. You know, we've got um, an industry peak body in there at the moment. Mm. So a much more diverse range of people and organizations. And I think at a, at a more diverse places along their journey yeah. as well. So you often have people coming in and engaging in the space and using the space that are in some sort of transition in their own journey, maybe transitioning from education, maybe re-entering the workforce, maybe having exited a startup or, or um, having a career change and mm. just sort of trying to figure out what to do next. Yep. So it really is all about that sort of melting pot of connection and the possibilities that are sort of bred out of just bringing those, those people that are engaged in in doing stuff and doing awesome stuff together. Yeah. Yeah. Were you, you said it, it started around about 2009. Were you involved right from the start? What was your involvement? Yeah, I like to think that um, I was definitely inspirationally and symbolically involved. So I was based in Cambodia at that time from 2009 to 2012. But um, on one of my visits back here, uh, so the founder of Inspire9 is Nathan Sampimon, who is an Old, uh, yeah, old-time friend of mine actually from the Eltham College days. Right. Okay. So from the high school yeah. days. So I was back here in between um, overseas assignments in Cambodia. I had a little bit of free time. I was meant to be back here for three weeks. It turned into three months because the Australian government was, uh, there was some bureaucracy happening. Yep. <laughs> yep. So I found myself just sort of hanging out and, and killing time at Nathan's office. Um, and just sort of, there was 
some really interesting um, groups. Meetup.com wasn't around back then, yeah. but there were some interesting sort of professional interest groups and clubs and, and those sorts of things that would come in to use the space. Um, and it seemed to be a bit of a social meeting point and, and those sorts of things. And one day I was walking down towards it from the train station and I found all this sort of random office furniture that had just been thrown out onto the laneway. Yeah. And I just like started wheeling those chairs down to, to what is, you know, to Inspire Nine. And I was like, we can just have more people here and they can come and hang out with us. And it'll be great. <laughs> so we got, you know, like 15 chairs and a whole bunch of desks just from the side of the road, like a couple hundred meters up the road. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah. And shortly after that, um, sort of this idea of co-working, which was really quite early, really quite new in, in Berlin and in San Francisco mm. that was emerging. It was it, around about 2009, is that when it was? Around about 2009, yeah. I think maybe like 2006, 2007, it might've sure. started. Yeah. There was a fortnightly meeting group called um, Jelly. So it was a fortnightly co-working meetup where people would open their lounge rooms or all meet up in a cafe and spend every second Friday working together. Mm. So um, Inspire9 started hosting jellies. Um, and at about that same time, I started up a twice yearly unconference, like a cross-disciplinary unconference event yep. with another couple of my friends. And the idea around that was just, yeah, again, about bringing passionate people together from diverse backgrounds and, and sharing. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, and so I guess that those sort of relatively nebulous formings of communities sort of coalesced around this physical space. Yeah. And then before we knew it, the space was bursting at the seams. Um, and in 2011, we sort of stumbled across this building. And uh, actually, funnily enough, at the same time, I had just uh, done a Kickstarter campaign to start a coffee co-working and collaboration space in Cambodia, where yeah. I was based at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, stumbled across, across this building. There was a lot of work to be done. Um, it was a much, much bigger space mm. and decided to go for it. So we moved into, the, we moved into one half of level one f at first yeah. and then the second half 18 months later. And the community really came together um, to really make that possible. Yeah. It's a big space, 350 square meter space. Um, floors needed sanding, walls needed painting. It was essentially a bit of a dump site from the manufacturing business that was based downstairs. So there was like a whole lot of crap that needed to be moved out. Mm. Um, you know, meeting rooms and internal walls needed to be built and facilities and, and all of those sorts of things. And there was many a long day um, with a, you know, I don't know if you know anything about these rented from Bunnings and these handheld, hand-operated sort of sanding machines. The ones you stand up and you move around. The ones you, you stand around. up, yeah. yeah, on the floors. But if you try and imagine covering a floor wow. space like this, it's a very, very big undertaking. Yes. Very oh sweaty, gosh. very dusty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think also taking on such a big project like that also really helped to galvanize the community. Oh, totally in its yeah. common purpose. So the founders of Culture Ramp were actually there sanding the floors along along with us. Yeah. 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 That's it's really interesting how it started from I mean there was a space, there was a place that you gathered around, but then the community was drawn to that that space and a, I guess a culture started to form and then you got you outgrew it and you found a bigger place that you then built together mm. as a group. Yeah. 
I think I've told you the story that I, you know, I used to run the office space in Sydney, the serviced office in Sydney, and we rented a floor in this building for about six months as well. But we had a very different approach, and this is probably why it didn't work. And I guess we were so close to what you were doing here, but we were so far away at the same time. Like we could never really have created this because of the way my business partner and I were thinking at the time. But it, it started with more of the, if you build it, they will come model, as opposed to having this organic thing that was growing it from the community and then the community owning it and building it. Mm. Um, which is, I guess, why you've had such longevity and been so successful, I suppose, mm. yeah. Yeah, well, I guess we were, we were pretty much first on the scene um, in Australia in yeah. terms of co-working spaces. And it, it has definitely been a lot of hard work. We've grown organically and mm. slowly. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if you've spoken to many other co-working businesses, but it is quite a difficult business model to make work because there's a lot of moving parts and kind of a lot of heavy lifting. You're talking about bricks and mortar and you're talking about human beings. Yeah. Um, so, you know, both of those things are, um, yeah, uh, you know, it can be really tough inputs to work with at times, I guess. Um, but I think that, yeah, definitely being community-led has been really key to our longevity and to our success as well. And what we're starting to see more and more is that co-working is definitely a global trend mm. that is like coming on very very rapidly the idea is rapidly mainstreaming um so there are quite a lot of players in the market at the moment who are taking the build it and they will come approach and probably they will uh they, they will come you know because there's um just lots of changes happening in terms of the world of work and um, mm. how we undertake our work and our careers and portfolio careers and um, workplace flexibility and location independence and all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think what we're finding more and more is a lot of these spaces and a lot of these larger institutions that are wanting to create those kinds of spaces for their existing communities are coming to us going, okay, yeah. like how do you do um, community and collaboration within a physical space? How do you sort of make that happen. It's a very new w way of working. It's a new style of working. It sort of requires a little bit more um, of a tolerance for flexibility and a bit of mess, mm. um, and a, a bit of chaos and uncertainty, yep. rather than sort of measuring these, um, you know, these hard, hard line, tangible business inputs and outputs, I suppose. So like hours worked or... Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. hours worked. I mean, a lot of the really large consulting firms know that they need to step away from that time sheeting, you know, how many hours we're getting out of our, each staff member kind of model, yeah. but they're not quite sure where, what to be stepping towards. So yeah, we've had yeah really exciting conversations with a couple of them now who are really just sort of grappling with this question, yeah. um, you know, and they, they know that needing to be seen in the office like from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Is, is not necessarily a healthy thing for the individual or the business yeah. um, in these changing times. So what, what do we then do with that? Yeah. Yeah. What, what comes next? So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. Yeah. I think you were saying you've been talking to even some local councils as well and Definitely. regional centres. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I think um, co-working has a lot, like a co-working approach and model has a lot that it can do from an economic development standpoint. Yeah. Um, you're not only looking at um, keeping money and keeping kind of consumer spending in, in sort of retail and 
surrounding services in your local area, but you're also looking at um, like employment or livelihood generation. Mm. Um, you're also looking at uh, a really significant sort of informal education offering, like what people can learn and how people can grow yeah. as being part of a co-working community. One of our three business yeah. metrics is resident, personal and professional transformation. That's one of the things wow. that we measure. At Inspire 9. At Inspire 9, yeah. yeah. Okay. The, other, the other two being business sustainability, which is uh, you know, obviously the traditional bottom line, I guess, and the third one being community connection, which is not only limited to our resident population, so people that are based here all the time, but like kind of reaches out to what are we doing for the broader ecosystem? How are we accessible and generating value for, yeah, Melbourne, for Australia, for the startups movement, for the yeah. um, the artisan, you know, renaissance that I think is where we're on the doorstep of. Yeah. yeah. So those are our three business metrics. So there's yeah. definitely a big education um, component. Yeah to that as well so it makes sense that the governments are looking at how to do this and how yeah, to make it, it work yeah yeah um like just on those three metrics i guess are they your they're inspire nine metrics mm -hmm. how do you how do you measure the success of what's happening internally like in terms of you know the culture and the community growth and the, the businesses that are here how do you look at that so when you say internally, um, you don't mean the Inspire9 team, you mean no, the residents. The residents, yes. Yeah, okay. So we have at Inspire9 and Foundry9, we have both residents and members, and residents are people that basically base themselves from here, from either a part-time or full-time basis. Mm. We've got about 170 residents at the moment yeah. across the two spaces. Wow. So your question is about um, how we measure their it's kind Growth? of about, it's, the question's really about the culture. How do you create the culture here and how do you know if it's working or not? Okay. You know, what do you, yep. you know, because I, I know, you know, Mike always talks about, one of the community managers here always talks about, you know, just by putting a table tennis table in here and a bit of craft beer, you know, it's not just, the magic just doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, well, what is that magic? And maybe what are some of the things that you do to, to kind of, to make that magic happen? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um... So I think thinking, thinking about and treating our residents as whole people. So it's not about, their success is, is not only about their business success or mm. their career success. You know, it is a, like that holistic approach, but that, that full spectrum. So what's happening, you know, in your personal yeah. life? Are you going through a breakup? Are you getting married? Are you moving house? Like, is one of your parents not well? All of those sorts of things and, um, in that way, we, um, you know, there are some things that we do by design. So there are rituals that we celebrate, like we have um, a birthday ritual where we always do cake and sing yeah. for any residents having a birthday in the space. Yeah. Um, and we do monthly potluck lunches where everybody comes together and brings something to share. Mike loves to say, bring your soul in a bowl, <laughs> yeah. um, which I really like the sound of too. And you know we use that as a pretty informal way to share and celebrate wins. Yeah. Um, we also have a wins wall where people can write up their um, their wins on the wins wall. So after this conversation, I will go downstairs and write like, I "Just did my first podcast interview ever," kind of thing, and, <laughs> yeah. and write it up on the wins wall. 
and there's a, a gong that we can ring as well. Yeah. Um, so that you know, there's sort of you know semi-formal things that that organisations and spaces, I suppose, can put in place to try and really highlight and amplify mm. those wins, that growth, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, having a culture that is not too obsessed with the wins and success, but is more obsessed with the journey mm. and the learnings mm. and the lessons, um, I think is pretty important too. Yep. So, you know, wherever you have um, sort of, yeah, like entrepreneurs and business building or even, you know, advocacy and lobbying, like sort of interest groups, you also have, you know, a subset of group therapy that kind of comes along about, you know, comes along with that. Yeah. So being able to share those challenges, being able to share the, the low times, the failures, the lessons, yeah. those sorts of things. Yeah. It's something that CultureAmp does really well. So um, you can take a closer look at it when we're done if you like, but they have a big wall um, over near their, pot, uh, their, their area over there, which is like the, yay, we failed wall, <laughs> where people can kind of like write down the times of, when they like failed really spectacularly wow. and, and, and put it up for yeah. everybody else to, to see and cool. share, which yeah. is pretty cool, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's, you know, we, we're very much a learn by doing mm. and, um, and sell by doing sort of organization. So we don't really um, put ourselves out there. We don't have a sort of, um, active or proactive kind of marketing or advertising approach. Yeah. We don't really do that. What we try and do is we um, do things like host community groups and community events mm. um, where people can do the, this sort of learning from one another and sharing and, and celebrating and condolences as well. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's sort of how we, um, I guess, create that culture. And also our roots, um, we've got really strong roots in, in engineering and particularly software engineering sort of um, uh, profession, yeah. I guess, and culture. Because mm. that's what Nathan does as well as his other business, is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah, he has a software development agency called i9 Developments yeah. Um, that yeah, builds like awesome software for startups. So with that sort of engineering culture, it's much more about the doing and the shipping of code and the getting out there and getting things done as opposed yeah. to talking about collaboration and, um, <laughs> you know, that and those building a perfect thing. Yeah, or networking and, yeah. um, uh, and those sorts of things, which I think that's another difference or differentiator that I hear a lot when people come here and they've worked here for a while. It's like, yeah, you know, it's a great environment and community, but you can also really just sit down and get things done. Yeah, am I right in saying that you've actually never done Google AdWords or anything no, like that? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we don't. Um, we haven't taken an advertising kind of approach at all. It's It's been very much organic yeah. and word of mouth and yeah. and those sorts of things. It's interesting what you're saying about learning too. Like I was just, I was updating Facebook and I was putting like my degrees in there and I was thinking about, man, what did I actually learn in those degrees? And I wonder, I wonder if, people's CVs are really going to start to change as mm. well. Because, you know, being enmeshed in, in, in a community like this and being involved in some of those conversations and seeing where people failed and just rubbing shoulders with the people that are here, learning by doing, like the stuff that you do learn in comparison to a degree are just, 
like they're streaks apart, right? And one's mm. still got a little bit more kudos, perhaps. I don't know, maybe not. Mm. What do you think? Um, yeah, I would suggest that you uh, go and interview Will Dable from, I want to say Square Weave. Okay. Um, yeah, based up in Fitzroy. He's very much in the sort of entrepreneurship education space and so also therefore necessarily very concerned with the future of education. Yeah. Something that I'm really passionate about as well. Like I remember when I left high school, I was just like, oh my goodness, I need six months off to write down and develop a program for all of those things that you don't get taught in high school. <laughs> yeah. About like what it, what it, you know, what's involved in kind of like being an adult in Australia, like in the real world. And so, you know, you're kind of personal finance staff, mm. you're sort of health and well-being staff, like some of your citizen and governance like obligations, you know, yeah. how to navigate the worlds of car insurance or <laughs> yeah, totally. why, why you shouldn't take out a personal loan to buy a car, like we all, what some of the drawbacks of that could be and, you know, though, like a lot of those sorts of things. And it's really interesting, I feel as though whenever I've come to the end of a chapter, I've often really yearned for time and space mm. to reflect and capture those lessons. Feel as though uh, in in our sort of society these days, it's maybe something that we're not that good at creating that space and time. When I um, sort of exited operational management of the social enterprise projects that I run in Cambodia, I felt the same way. Felt yeah. like, wow, there is like a lot of learning and there's a lot of stories here and I'd love to have six months to, to get them all down and, yeah. you know, to, to leverage that learning, to be able to share it with others who might be on the same journeys at, at earlier points in the journey maybe. Yeah, totally. Mm. Yeah. Have you had a chance to do any of that kind of stuff in the past? <laughs> or are you saying that maybe something in the future you might do? Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely something that I want to get good at and I think a way... Um, of getting good at that is more like kind of doing it as you go. Mm. So not like being completely absorbed and focused in what you're doing at the time, um, but cre creating little windows of opportunity for that reflection and for that capturing along the way. Yeah. And I guess that's, yeah, I mean, on, in that way, I think like what you're doing with the Subtle Disruptors podcast is really, really helpful because it actually does generate that space and time. Mm. Yeah, and and capture yeah. as well. So that's yeah. good. Yeah, I guess that's one of the things I hope it does. Even for the people I'm speaking with, it gives them a moment to pause and, and think about their journey a yeah. little bit too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I really want to talk a little bit about Cambodia because I don't know much about what you've done over there or how you even got there. Like, yeah, what what was the genesis of that journey? Were you travelling and you stumbled across an opportunity? Uh, no. So, all right, so my time in Cambodia, um, at the beginning of 2008, I actually applied for and was successful in um, getting into the Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development Genesis, Program, yeah. Yeah, which was an AusAid Australian government funded professional volunteer placement program, mm. essentially. Um, and the, my placement was based in Batambong, Cambodia, so in the regional northwest centre of Cambodia. Yep. Uh, I was placed with a local NGO there that had been around since peace was brokered in, in um, 1993 by mm. UNTAC. And um, the local NGO, so it was quite a large local NGO, 
um, long-standing one, you know, lots of grounded knowledge and lessons in the communities that they were working in. And they had a variety of projects. They had six different projects, three revenue generating, three non-revenue generating. And so this is, we're talking about March 2008, so we're talking about the brink of the global financial crisis. Mm. There was also a global rice shortage at that time, right. which was maybe less publicised, but had a really big impact on, um, on the Cambodian context. So my remit in working there was really looking at different models and different approaches and whether a donor-based NGO kind of approach was the best way to go forward. And it was quite fascinating when I arrived, like pretty much every local NGO I came across would run, was gonna run out of money within the next six to 12 months. They just, just did not know their future. Yeah. And um, you know, it, it created like a lot of panic um, and it, it created some, you know, contributed understandably towards some really bad practices as well. Like everybody was, writing proposals to gain access to climate change funding because that was funding that was available at the time. Yeah. And you know these organizations and these development practitioners that were really passionate about their work, also about keeping their jobs um, and about the communities that they served, wanted to be able to continue doing what they were doing. Yeah. But the context was just changing. Yeah. So they were kind of adjusting to fit the context, yeah. which you can totally understand, but also is pretty fundamentally broken. Yeah. In some ways, you know, you have like these child rights organizations writing like climate change project proposals and yeah. what's going on yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. So it's super interesting um, context to step into yeah. and uh, worked with that organization for a couple of years looking at how it structured itself and those sorts of things. Yeah. So that's how I came to be in Cambodia. Yeah. I really wanted field experience as well because I did have a lot of suspicions, I guess, academically and in theory about some of the fundamental flaws about a donor-driven international development model, yep. especially when the donors are often foreign yeah. donors. Um, and I just wanted to see how that fell out in practice. Like I wanted to see what that looked like. Yeah. So yeah, had a couple of years of really getting stuck into that um, and learning by doing and learning just by being embroiled in um, corruption sometimes or you know nepotism or poor decision making based on where funds are available and, yeah. and and all of that kind of stuff and sort of came out of that placement going wow like I now have first-hand experience and knowledge of some of these fundamental flaws of international development yeah. and uh, I'm not sure it's the the best tool for change yeah. um, you know and it, it really sort of I guess um, yeah, grounded me again in that conviction of looking for more of a market-based model. Mm. So more of a model that could engage in, a, in the marketplace in, in a little bit more of a relevant and validated and in, I guess engaged way. If that, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Um, so yeah, that social enterprise model yeah. um, for sustainability, but also for relevance and those yeah. sorts of things. It's not, yeah, I definitely think that international development and like humanitarian humanitarian aid and relief definitely have their place um yeah but i think for me like the vehicle for change that i'm most passionate about is is social enterprise yeah so that experience and that journey really helped 
yeah. reinforce that for me, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So then I just decided to start experimenting with a few projects of my own there. Yeah. Um, was still coming back to Australia every six months to run Trampoline Day, which is like the cross-disciplinary ideas sharing unconference yep. um, here in Melbourne and we, you know, in Adelaide and Sydney as well. Um, so I guess that was sort of my, um, I don't know, sort of innovation nourishment in a way, mm. you know, because working in a pretty rural context, um, foreign context, you know, where English isn't spoken and all of that kind of stuff, it can get really difficult to talk about exciting ideas and philosophy and, and concepts and, and those sorts of things. So, yeah, coming back every six months and, and running trampoline days here was really good fuel and energy to then take back it into the field, you know, because yeah, yeah. um, I think change happens in the field, but it's really important that you have your home base where you're nourished and you can refuel and and get new ideas totally. and input and all that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. So I actually met somebody at a trampoline day uh, unconference who was, who had been in Cambodia 10 years ago volunteering and had decided to get, you know, get his degree out of the way and, and get a bit of professional experience and come back when he had more skills to offer. And he was sort of applying for positions and, and looking at that time. Yeah. And I said, oh, well, like there's tons of stuff to do. Don't worry. There is like a lot of things that you can do over there. Because he was saying that it was quite difficult. A lot of the positions advertised are highly competitive and they sort of require five years experience, two languages, master's degree, you know, yeah. all these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and I said, you should just come over and like hang out and, you know, we can try a few things if you like. He was like, okay, cool. Um, at that stage, he was building a, an SMS-based platform okay. um, like, and looking at different models for that. So it could be like citizen-led governance. Um, so kind of what, you know, how Twitter, it can be a, a mm. tool for social organizing now like that. So building a, a, an SMS-based platform like that and, and also a platform for um, farmers to find out about pricing and merchants and market forces and, and those sorts of things. So a kind of call and respond right. SMS-based platform. Yeah. So he was kind of just doing that for fun in his spare time anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, you know, like rent is cheaper in Cambodia, come on over and, yeah. you know, we'll, yeah, maybe we'll try and do some things together. So um, he came over at the end of 2009 and we just started working on a series of experiments. So we looked at what we could do fostering and encouraging NGO collaboration and transparency mm. in the region. We looked at um, youth incubation and entrepreneurship development and what we could do towards that, um, that sort of area. We did some human rights work. Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, we looked at the, the problematic but just amazing potential sort of tempting opportunity of sort of volunteerism. So tons of people, passion, want to do good, good intentions, lots of relevant skills. How can you actually connect that into a developing community and, yeah. and have it be a helpful thing? Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, how can you coordinate it so it's not all these sporadic efforts? Yeah, yeah. Or, or damaging. Damaging efforts. As yeah. well. Because, mm. you know, volunteerism, again, is a donor-driven model. Mm. Uh, so it's like, what do the volunteers want to do? Oh, What's that? They want to like play with children and have it, you know what I mean? Or what is that? They want to 
you know, maybe they're a, a financial controller in their day job, but what they'd really like to do when they're on holiday is really um, do something with their hands, get their hands dirty and maybe like build a, a house or something. You know, it's very much <laughs> the opportunity exists in, in what sort of experiences the volunteer is really willing to pay for, yeah. which is, um, you know, not, not really about the com- what the community needs. Yep. So, yeah, looked at that, you know, so we did kind of a series of experiments and what we ended up with was the, uh, the experiments that we did that ended up having traction and sticking. Mm. So the first one of those was Soxabike, which is an educational cultural heritage bicycle tour, which in which students from the countryside that have migrated into town to finish yeah. their high school or university take guests out back out into the countryside mm, cool. and share stories of their personal culture and history and yeah. talk about how you know how country people make a living and how they get by and and do a bit of education around some of the traditional um traditional made handmade products yeah. and cottage industries kind of thing so that was sort of our first project or our first business that mm. really took off. Yeah. Um, and yeah, visitors were really crying out for an experience like that, an experience that shared positive stories, an experience where they got to really, um, you know, like, uh, you know, in close, came in close contact with and were able to interact with and talk with yep. sort of normal everyday Cambodian people and, yeah. and hear their stories and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, so that business started the beginning of 2010 or like sort of halfway through 2010 and yeah, really, really took off. And then um, at the end of 2010, we ran a Kickstarter campaign for coffee co-working and collaboration in Cambodia. And (laughs) we, yeah. yeah, we opened a vocational training espresso cafe. So working with, again, Young people, um, maybe they had some uh, projects of their own or passions of their own. Maybe they were seeking further education. um, They needed a job kind of thing to help pay the bills to stay in town. Mm. Um, And like essentially on top of the cafe, we had a co-working space and a peer-to-peer education classroom, you know? So that also provided an opportunity for these volunteerists to come in who they really wanted to do something good it's like, cool, what good that can they do that doesn't actually have a downside or whatever? Come and run a workshop or a class and share some of your experiences and skills to whoever wants to show up. Yeah. And, and we'll provide some snacks, you know? Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that became our second project. Cool. Which uh, opened in December 2010. So the cafe is um, almost five years old now. Yeah, still going. Still going. Yeah. Yep, yep. And then six months later, we partnered with a couple of local artists in town and opened Samaki, which is a local art gallery. Yeah. Um, you know, Battambong's first independent local art gallery and had an, has an artist residency space as well. Wow. So, you know, again, doing, doing community, like neighborhood classes for kids around drawing and painting and, and mm. whatnot, but providing local artists because Battambong is really sort of cultural and arts capital of mm. Cambodia historically. Okay. Yeah, and was really, really devastated by the Khmer Rouge where um, artists and singers and, and actors were targeted right. uh, by the genocide. Um, yeah, so just sort of really trying to 
bring back mm. bring back a bit of bit of an arts renaissance to the area. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the three. I guess they're three social enterprise businesses. Yeah, they're yeah. all really cool. I was just as you were talking, I was thinking about the similarities between how they started and how Inspire Nine started as well. And really, you took the time to get to know, I guess, a local people, a local area, um, experimented a bit, and then things grew up organically in mm. both situations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really cool way, and it, and I guess as we were saying about Inspire Nine, it's had quite a bit of longevity for a co-working space. Well, I guess it started when co-working started and those enterprises you've started in, in Cambodia are still going today and I imagine having a really positive impact on mm. the local communities. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, we actually were, um, yeah, really honoured to receive a Regional Responsible Tourism Award yeah. run by the Wild Asia Foundation a few months ago, yeah, wow. which, which was fantastic recognition because, yeah. again, the businesses are, you know, um, small but significant. Yeah. They're creating small but significant change. Uh, they're definitely not, you know, like national or global franchises. It's not like they've attracted funding and they're really scaling up and we've pumped, you know, hundreds and hundreds of students through the programs yeah. or, or anything like that. Sure, yeah. Um, but I guess the slow, like that slow burn to begin with mm. helps to create a really, really solid foundation yeah. where, you know, like I know with Kenya Cafe at the moment, you know, people will come to me and they, they see it as like an institution <laughs> of the, the coffee scene in, in the whole country, like a, an actual founding legacy wow. player, yeah. you know, in, in that whole movement. So earlier this year, we actually were approached by a newer social enterprise based in Cambodia, they're a cafe and coffee roasting business. Mm -hmm. um, and our local team already had a, a really positive relationship with this business. Um, we were kind of approached by them, um, by them saying like, you know, saying exactly that, like Kenya Cafe is a legacy in Cambodia and it um, should be around for a really long time and, you know, continue, like continue providing that sort of coffee excellence, but also that really friendly and interactive sort of atmosphere. Yes. That, you know, maybe a little bit of a point of differentiation to sort of just your normal straight service cafe kind of culture. Yeah. But more about learning and sharing experiences and stuff. Yeah. And they said, well, I guess, you know, you have great local management now and, and they're running the business and operating the business very effectively. But in times of such rapid change, um, they're going to have to really innovate you know, and, and really evolve yeah. to keep up. Uh, and, you know, we're not sure, you know, we're not really sure about whether the, the local team has those, the skills they really need to do that, but we'd like to bring that. So yeah. how can we perhaps work together? Mm. Um, yeah, so now um, we have fantastic new partners. Yeah. Sort of six months later, we've got fantastic new partners in that cafe business who um, are in just really seasoned industry experts yeah. in sort of starting and running cafes yeah. done it all over the world for the past 20 years yeah, right. um, and you know I guess we sort of bring the social enterprise and sort of that local community engagement mm. strength mm. and expertise and they bring the hospitality expertise yeah. um, and it's yeah it's been really really good at you know like the official partnership kind of kicked off at the beginning of October 
since then there's been a full renovation hmm. of the cafe, a full re redevelopment of the menu and some really intensive training of our team. Yeah. Um, and I went back, I was lucky enough week before last to go back and visit for like a day yeah. <laughs> really, really quickly. <laughs> and um, sales are up like 70%. Wow. And you know, the team is like really activated and, and rising to the challenge, yeah. I suppose. Um, and one of the other awesome things that we were able to achieve through this partnership was something that we'd always had our sights set on doing and we'd just never quite been able to make work, which is having an employee profit share pool. Hmm. Um, and offering ownership to the local management. So cool. Yeah. yeah, so now we have one of our local managers now has a stake in the business. He's a co-owner with us. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty, man, it's pretty exciting. That is, yeah, that is awesome. <laughs> uh, it'd be fascinating, I guess, to keep tabs on that as well and see where it goes in the years to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's amazing. Like, actually, the uh, an, like another really big achievement of the cafe is that uh, the team has won the national barista championships for two years running yeah and like one of the years we were there and then the next year around we weren't there and you know they they still like trained and prepped and worked really hard and 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 yeah came came home with the title so it's pretty it's impressive yeah, yeah. it's pretty exciting yeah it is yeah yeah but you know it could have gone either way like you never know yeah. what's going to happen sure. yeah. so when we in at the beginning of 2013 when we left Cambodia in terms of living and working in Cambodia we sort of had to I guess in that way like completely like let go of our our babies that we'd created and, and really just sort of make peace mm. that we'd done what we could do and that they're gonna sort of fly on their own and whatever was gonna happen was gonna happen. Yeah. Like obviously still being available to provide remote support and you know, if there'd been any crises or whatever, we would have been there in a second and stepped in and yeah. and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, um, you know, gotta let go. Yeah, yeah. see if I can fly. <laughs> See if they can fly. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about portfolio careers and how, you know, a lot of, I guess, things are heading in that way for a lot of people. Mm. It seems like you're, you've had a little bit of a portfolio career, but what does that actually mean to you and how you're general manager of Inspire9 at the moment? Well, mm. Do you have other things going on? You know, do you have a portfolio career happening right now? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose that I've... Um, I sort of do remote um, support and governance and, and leadership really yeah. of those three social enterprise businesses in Cambodia mm -hmm. um, and that you know the the work and time involved in that fluctuates based on what's going on um, a, almost about a year ago I joined a board of a small um, peace building organization that operates across Southeast Asia yeah so maybe that's another um, small piece of the portfolio. Yeah. Inspire9 is definitely the, the main piece. And at the moment, um, I'm the acting CEO yeah. as I sort of, uh, yeah, I'm um, kind of working really, really hard alongside with the rest of the team to um, catch this rising tide that's happening in co-working and, yeah. and the startup ecosystem at large. Yeah. Um, in, in Melbourne and in Australia at the moment. And yeah, so that's definitely, I guess, my main 
gig. Okay. Um, and, you know, Trampoline Day sort of um, bumbles along there as well. You know, that's sort of a twice, a twice yearly commitment of running sort of one to 200 person unconference event for a day, yeah. which was cool. Yeah. Um, and then other than that, I do sort of, um, sort of advisory and mentorship services for starting up social enterprises or um, yeah co-working spaces as well co-working spaces as well yeah yeah Yeah. so in terms of my portfolio career I suppose um, I've always really really valued variety Mm. and diversity Mm. um, and flexibility I suppose it can definitely be challenging um, balancing all of those sorts of things and I guess it means having a little bit more resilience around, uh, yeah, just sort of being resilient in the face of uncertainty, mm. being able to, um, yeah, really sort of dig in when things get busy. And sometimes it's, it, everything just happens at once, yeah. you know? Yeah. And you just, you just kind of have to... The internet goes down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just sometimes it, it you know that whole saying about it never rains but it pours kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which I suppose can actually happen even if you're just working one dedicated full-time role. Yeah. That can still happen. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, to be honest, I feel as though it's the way of the future. I mm. feel as though the way in which it's happening more and more now is that people will have main gigs and they will have sort of projects on the side where they might find more purpose or meaning. Yeah. That seems to be a pretty common configuration. Yeah. And that their main gig might be the bread and butter yeah. and the kind of the thing that pays the bills. Yeah. And then the side projects are more, you know, you hear passion project is a term being thrown around um, quite side often. Hustle. Side hustle, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those sorts of things. Um, but I think more and more, you know, we are stepping towards um, a place where people are demanding much more meaning and purpose. Mm. Um, in the work that they undertake and the sort of working environments and the, the places from which we can undertake this work is also, you know, um, lots more f- flexibility and adaptability is opening up in that way as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of changes there, a lot of changes. And even just like the conversation shifting from... Uh, yeah, the conversation, I suppose, shifting for employers around how do you attract and retain talent? Mm. Okay, like how do, we, how do we give them what they want? How do we keep them engaged? And people realizing that it is actually an incredibly powerful thing yep. to engage somebody's personal passion and sense of purpose in their work. Yep. You know, it's like businesses are like, yes, we want that. Like mm. that's important to us rather than we're paying you for your time. Yeah. to put together these widgets yeah. or to crunch these numbers, like please complete the task and, and then go <laughs> yeah. home and live the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, it's becoming a much more integrated um, approach and offering, I suppose. Yeah, I think I was having a conversation with someone about this the other day as well and we were just speculating about how there's an opportunity for, for business to pick up the pieces that perhaps families and school and universities dropped, you know, in that, 
you know, tapping into, I guess it's some of those things you were talking about, you know, when you left high school and it's like, well, this is, this is the stuff you really need to learn. Businesses now almost have an opportunity to, to be that for a lot of people to say like, you know, we know that you want meaning and purpose in your work. We know that it's about your whole person and it's about being well physically and mentally and socially. And we can start to offer that through these workplaces as well, because it's going to be better for us. And more importantly, it's going to be better for you and the society as a whole mm. as well. Yeah. yeah. Something really encouraging that I heard the other day is that Myob, the accounting software business, yeah. um, offers all, all of its employees a professional development budget, and that professional development budget can be used for courses offered at the School of Life. Mm. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about accounting or, yeah. or whatever your specific um, skill set is and furthering that, it's more like it can be used for things like questioning the meaning of life. Yeah. Yeah, which is, which is really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Yeah, I'm really excited about where workplaces might be heading as well. Mm. And I think, you know, this is obviously a flagship for it in Melbourne. A couple of questions to round off the conversation. Uh, first one is, what do you, when you think about the future and something you might want to be involved in disrupting positively in the future, where does your imagination take you? Where does your mind go? Um, wow. Where do I start? You know? <laughs> I mean, I think in terms of really um, pushing the edges and accelerating change in the space of the world of work yeah. um, is something that I now, you know, have some really solid skills and experience in yeah. as well as a lot of passion and yeah. time for. So I'd love to keep on contributing to that area. Yeah. Um, the peer-to-peer -peer movement and collaborative consumption movovement around peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending, car share, Airbnb, right. um, yeah. you know, what's mine is yours kind of type stuff, cooperatives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's something that I've always been passionate, passionate about, I think, from like my efficiency bug. Like I've always had an efficiency thing, even as yeah. a kid. So. <laughs> When I moved to Cambodia, I had a, a car and like a couple thousand dollars in my savings account kind of thing. And I was like, oh, I won't be needing these things for at least a year. So I rented them both out. Yeah. You know, so I, I um, sort of distributed my, my personal savings account. It was pretty small, but um, in, in the form of peer-to-peer -peer loans yeah. um, to help <laughs> some of my friends pay off their credit card debts because they were, you know, realizing massive interest rates. Mm. on their credit, like 15, 18% at that time, I yep. think, on their credit cards. Um, and, you know, I was maybe earning four or five in my ING direct everyday savings account. So I was like, well, I definitely won't be needing to access this money in the next 12 months because mm. I've got a living allowance for Cambodia. Yeah. So um, how about, you know, you pay off your credit card debt and we, you know, split the interest rate halfway kind of thing. Wow. You know? Yeah. And then I just like found somebody at my workplace who had just moved into state um, to start working with World Vision. I was finishing up at World Vision and I was like, well, if you need a car, but you're on a grad program, so you don't know how long you'll be around for, why don't you just rent mine yeah. um, for the year and then I'll, I'll be back and uh, you, you, know, you don't need to go through all the rigmarole of purchasing a car because after you finish your grad program, you're going to get posted overseas somewhere. Yeah. So it sort of, yeah, worked out really well. Of course, I wasn't back in a year. I was gone <laughs> yeah. for five years, but, um, but yeah, like that peer-to-peer -peer stuff is just it's just efficiencies it's just making use of something that otherwise is totally. going to sit there and not be used yeah. so that's yep that's definitely another thing that i want to contribute to more yeah disrupting yeah um 
Yeah, and also personal ownership of stuff is really weird. Mm. It's really weird. But mm. that's maybe another, that's maybe that's a red wine conversation. <laughs> um, and then thirdly, a big one is um, housing. Housing and housing affordability in Melbourne, I guess, because it's relevant to me, yeah. but just cities. How do we do it? How do we do high density urban living mm. that is um, environmentally sound, that is sustainable, that um, really embraces all parts of our community? So the elderly, children, yeah. you mm. know, people with disabilities, everyone, yeah. and not, not just sort of pockets of gentrification and then big retirement housing developments and then, you know, like the, these sorts of things. Yeah. So um, the housing space in, in Melbourne, but I guess just from a model perspective in the world at large is something that I'm really, um, been really fascinated about for the last year. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, like property ownership for me is, um, yeah, a totally distant, almost, you know, unreachable dream. Yeah. And, you know, not only is it weird that I would want to invest so heavily in and commit so much to mm. privately and personally owning a property for my own use yep. only. Yeah. Um, but yeah, also these days in this context, it's highly untenable for me and a lot of people in my generation. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean that I don't want material security, doesn't mean that I don't want a home base. So what, you know, what alternative solutions exist out there? What, what can we make? Yeah. Uh, that, that really, you know, fits that need in a, in a better way. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I think about that a little bit myself at the moment as well. And yeah, a couple of things jumped to my mind. Like my sister sent me something recently about a, um, a childcare centre, or well, it was actually emerging of a childcare centre in an old people's home. So that the, the kids and the grandparents get to hang out and so good for both of them, right? And uh, the other thing I think about is, yeah, like, why would you want to put all your money into something that's going to restrict you in such a way as mm. well into say buying a house which is what a lot of people do where it's one of those things where implicitly ingrained into us from i guess a very early age but you know to be able to i guess free ourselves up with the money that we do have to use it as a tool to enable the things that we do want but also give us more you know we do want material security well can we still have that and also have so much more as mm. well and use that money to to release that as opposed to lock us into something that you know well it does lock us in in many ways you know you, you can't really go out as much perhaps you, you're just sitting there watching tv a lot of the time mm, yeah, yeah absolutely and having spoke to my folks about this um at length repetitively a number of times <laughs> they're really keen for me to purchase a property yeah um you know like if i think about the context and the cost benefit analysis for them they knew they wanted to live in Melbourne. Mm. Uh, my mum knew that she wanted to be in early childhood education from when she was a teenager, mm. and then she did it for 40 years. And this, you know, she's retiring at the end of this year. Yeah. And um, my dad has had a similar career path in sort of accounting and financial management. Yeah. So, um, like, it is actually a different context. Mm. And I also think back then, um, businesses and employers and institutions would commit to you much more yeah. than they will now too. So, you know, that the fact that we're seeing times shift from um, much more from a space of commitment more to a space of subscription 
let's yeah. be together for as long as suits us yeah. kind of type thing. Um, yeah, to, to commit to a 30 or 50 or 80 year mortgage, um, it just costs much more in so many ways for us now because it's a different context. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds over the next five, ten years, that's for sure. Mm. Um, and then a last question to wrap up with. What's something you would suggest to people that they can do right now, you know, a little thing or a subtle thing that they can start to shift in their own life to move themselves in the direction that we've been talking about today? So I think one of the things that... Um, one of the things that really has helped me to fuel... It's, you know, and it's not about, I don't, totally don't feel uh, successful, <laughs> you know, or like I've made it really in any way. <laughs> I, I honestly don't, don't feel like that. I feel as though it's sort of been a journey of, um, there's a saying that is um, like kind of death by a thousand cuts, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, for me, I would say that something that everybody can do, that everybody has the capacity for, and that they can do right now, today, um, is to reflect. So I'm an external processor, so I do a lot of my reflection in conversation with others, yeah. uh, you know, over a glass of wine or a cup of coffee or, um, you know, walking around the park or whatever it is. Um, but, you know, whether whatever that is for you, you mm. know, whether that is creating a, a quiet space and, and doing some journaling yeah. or um, or whether it is sort of, yeah, having a, a conversation about what it is you do and why. Mm. So, your, so your topic for this reflection homework that I'm giving you all now yeah. um, is about the idea of inertia. Okay. So what is default and what is inertia in our lives um, probably determines a lot of what has happened and probably will, will determine a lot of what will happen. Yeah. So actually just doing a, a little bit of a reflective exercise around what, what do those things look like in my life right now. So yeah, what is happening by way of inertia? So because it has happened in that way in the past or because if I do nothing, it will just continue to happen yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, as opposed to what am I choosing? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. I guess you could just, you know, spend thirty minutes either reflecting on that in in some capacity, in some way, and yeah. maybe that's something little. I think it's really good. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Mel. It's been awesome to talk with you. <laughs> thanks, Adam. Yeah. Oh, um... <laughs> it's been really, really fun. Bit nerve wracking, but it's been super fun. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now.